Good job. Ah, uh, oh, you see a picture there, a little blurry. Can you find me in there is the question, right? Uh, I'm the guy with the maroon hat, and this was uh, days, I think a couple days before Rachel and I got engaged as well. But this is in Namibia, Africa. Anybody know where Namibia is? Show of hands, Namibia. It's yeah, just above South Africa. Yeah, you know, you've been there. That's just above South Africa. They gained their independence like in 1990 or something. And so we went there to do a, a short-term missions trip uh, with a Youth for Christ camp uh, directed by some Afrikaners. Uh, his name was Yos and his wife, Sylvia. And we got to spend a couple of weeks there. And, and as we got there, you know, you don't think you go to Africa all the way to do small tasks, but that's what they needed done. And part of it was just building relationships with those who were there. And so as we were there, some of these kiddos that are around that cross... Um, one of my jobs was uh, often they lived in the bush or they would go to school and to get them there for Bible study and game night, kind of like a youth group, um, we would go and they had me go and pick them up. Now this was an adventure because this is a German colony and so they drive on the wrong side of the road or the right side, which is the wrong side. And uh, even the Jeep, which I took, which kind of looked like one of those safari Jeeps or one of the Jeeps from, if you've ever seen Ace Ventura, uh, it had about that good of shocks. Uh, so I'd take the Jeep, I was sitting on the wrong side and driving and then you go pick up these kids and they just climb in and we had far more kids than we had seatbelts. Yeah, all fun and laughing, and a few of them spoke some broken English, so I was able to communicate with the older ones. And so I picked them up, and we're going along this two-lane road, and uh, they're laughing, having fun, and I'm just trying to remember what side of the road to be on and how to get back to the camp. And as I'm driving, I look ahead, and you see another Jeep with some official markings on it, a light on top, and uh, another car there with the soldier. And they're soldiers, you know, they, they have their uniform, their berets on, and usually have some sort of rifle strapped to their back. And one of them was leaning and talking into this car, and then the other one was there, and as we got closer, he's kind of waving. And so I was like waving back, and I was like, what do I do? Do I stop? Do I go on? And, and they would call me Kevin, was how they'd pronounce my name. So they're just like, Kevin, keep driving. Keep driving. And I was like, okay. So I just waved, and I kept on going, and all of a sudden the car was silent, and all those kids were feeling a little bit, I don't know what they were thinking, so I was like looking at them, and I looked back, and I was like, huh, he's looking at me kind of strange, and uh, we get back to the, the place, and they began to tell Yos about the trip back, it was my first time doing it, and they all started to giggle and laugh, I heard my name repeated several times, I began to, when I get embarrassed, uh, I get really red. I just can't hide it. My face just gets really red, and uh, I can't stop it. It's, it's rather uncontrollable, so it is embarrassing to get embarrassed. But uh, I just started to realize they're making fun of me, and Yost is like, that's a checkpoint. You're supposed to stop, and they just, they always do it, and sometimes they'll ask for a bribe, but usually not from a foreigner. And so he's like, you should probably stop next time, and I was like, oh, no. I totally ignored his authority, and the rest of the trip, the kids just mocked me. Uh, just for going through that and ignoring that checkpoint. And, um, you know, uh, they, they were fearless in that moment. Um, and, yeah, I should have had a little bit of fear, but I trusted them, and a part of me didn't want to stop anyway. Um, and so, you know, we, we can travel amongst countries, and even throughout the world we know that there are general uh, institutions and laws established that we respect, Right. Uh, there are, are laws for government as far as most countries, not all of them, 
you can ask Steve about that, but uh, one of our missionaries, but uh, most countries have a speed limit, or at least in some form of traffic laws. Uh, we, we understand the general concept of a police or a military or uh, a president, a prime minister, or even in the school setting, right? Even in different countries, school settings have uh, principals and they have teachers and people in the society you're to respect. And in the midst of the, these, these human institutions that we have around the world, they're designed to protect and provide for human flourishing through these structures of authority. Now, if you have your Bibles, we're back in First Peter. And uh, in First Peter, uh, we're seeing that Peter says we are sojourners. Um, we're citizens of heaven, sojourners here on earth. Earth is not our home. We have a new kingdom we're a part of through Jesus Christ. And so as we walk through that, we realize now as all people, if you live in a nation, no matter what period of history or time, or even if you're just in a tribe, you you live under some sort of human institution or authority. And so the question is, what does it look like to live as citizens of heaven here on earth? Or how do we handle this kind of dual citizenship? So what Peter's going to begin to walk us into today as he moves from establishing this foundation of why we should be unoffendable people and all the gifts and blessings that are ours in Christ and the confidence we should have in that that should cause us to not be offended by people but to reach out to them and live in a way that changes lives. Uh, he's going to be moving into an even more practical section where he um, begins to tell us, here's how this works with you and your government or those in authority. Here's how it works with people in authority in any area of your life. Then he's next week, I don't know if I should say this out loud, but next week we're going to talk about marriage and how it works. So maybe you want to come, maybe you don't. Um, so next week we'll be looking at marriage. And, so, and then he's going to look at the church. How does authority work in the church? How do we work and not get offended by one another in the church and, and make a difference in people's lives? And so we move from that theoretical into like, here's how this really is supposed to work out itself in life. And so uh, as we move in, we're in chapter 2, starting in verse 13 today. And uh, I'm going to read a few verses for you this morning. It says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so as we look into this passage, um, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Some of your versions might read, um, be in submission to or submit yourselves or put yourself under the authority of there in that first sentence. And so uh, it begs a question for us that we, we really need to ask. And, um, and that is this. What is submission? What is submission? What does it look like to submit? Now, I grew up, and on Friday evenings, and uh, occasionally on the weekends, there would be 
wrestling on TV. Not, not real wrestling, like some of you, but, you know, WWF. And uh, what would they have? They'd have a submission hold. You tap out. Or if you get in a wrestle with your brother or a friend and, and you wrestle and you're trying to pin them down until they say, what? Well, I give up. Right? That, that's the picture of submission we often have is waving the white flag, giving up. Saying, I, I surrender. I, I, I can't handle it anymore. I can't take it. it. It's seen as weakness and defeat when you submit. And as we look at that, and if we were to apply that definition to what we're seeing here, it would not go well for marriage. It would not go well for how we work and what we expect of our governments. Are they supposed to crush us until we just submit? And so the better question I think to ask this morning is, what is biblical submission? What does God's word say about submission? How's that word used here in this context and actually throughout the whole of the New Testament? And I think if we are going to do that, we need to look, and often you can help if you don't know the definition of a word. If you begin to read the paragraphs around it and the words around it, you can begin to see the context in which it is used. And so I would start with this verse just a few down from it. Verse 16. Live as people who are free. We are to live as people who are free. Hmm. What does that mean? What does he mean whenever he says you are a free people? Well, just a few verses back that we looked at several weeks ago in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says you are a chosen race. We just read these in our responsive reading. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, we once were enemies of God, but now we're family with God. We are, are saved by Christ. The gospel has made us free from the bondage of sin. We're free to follow Jesus. There's a freedom when you come to know Christ that, that your life is no longer bound. You've got a greater purpose. And death, most importantly, has no sting anymore, right? You know you're eternal and you're going to be with Jesus for eternity. That's the freedom he is referring to here. It's a freedom that we have of being in God's kingdom. So how then are we who are free called to live? You see, if Jesus is our only authority and God's our only authority, and we begin to realize that this has authority in our life over and above everything, Jesus is at the center of it all. The call to follow him is a submission of our entire life to him. How are we going to use that freedom? When I was a freshman in high school, at Moanalua High School there in Hawaii, we had a, a brand new teacher in our science class. And uh, I can remember that uh, she was struggling with her classroom management. I know what that is now. I didn't call it that at the time. I just knew we could get a lot away with quite a bit. And I didn't mind pushing the limits at that time in my life. Um, and so I remember she had to use the restroom and rather unwisely with the freshman science class, she said, I'll be right back. And uh, one minute turned into two, and we began to look around and realized we got some freedom. Kids started pulling food out and eating it. Other kids were sitting on desks. Uh, ones like me were like, finally freedom. I can walk around the classroom. I was bound to my chair, go talk to everybody. And it didn't get too chaotic that day. Um, but you could begin to see that without authority or someone in front, if we thought we were just totally free, no consequences, 
we ran a little wild. <laughs> I don't know what it's like when the boss is away at work or, or when maybe it's just uh, uh, the freedom that you have. You know that somebody can't really enforce anything on you. So do you take advantage of that? Um, so we're free, but we're not forced or coerced like the words of that definition of submission. Um, if we look back here, right after it says... Um, in verse 13, right after it says, be subject or submit, there's a key phrase. It says, for the Lord's sake. Submit for the Lord's sake. And then uh, a little bit uh, further down, it says that we do this uh, because it is the will of God to do it. And so uh, it says that in verse 15. And so as we begin to look at biblical submission, it's following what Christ commands us to do as citizens. What does he want us to do in this world? How does he want us to respond to the authorities he has put in place? And so, as we look at biblical submission, we can see that it is uh, the choice, first off, to place oneself under God's authority. The choice to place oneself under God's authority. And so, it's voluntary, first off. It is a decision we make to submit. It is not forced upon us until we can't move anymore. It's a choice that we make to make sure that we follow God's word and his authority in our lives. Uh, the Greeks would use the same term in the military, and uh, they would use it in a way that says it is a voluntary attitude of cooperating with authority and assuming your responsibility in that. And so, first off, it is voluntary. Uh, and, and secondly, as free people, we choose biblical submission because we are free from this world, but we freely choose to follow Christ because of what he has done for us. Now, submission is not weakness. This is the same term that is used to describe Jesus' relationship with his heavenly Father. If you'll jump down with me uh, to verses 23 through 25, uh, we begin, or 22 to 25, we begin to see, as Peter points us back to Isaiah 53, a famous passage, uh, we begin to see the picture we have of Christ submitting himself to the will of God the Father. Yeah, he said, Christ suffered for you, leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He submitted himself to God the Father's will, even unto death on the cross. And it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were like straying sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. And so in Jesus Christ, we have the best picture of submission. And even in that final prayer, he's in the garden the night before, he's, as he's about to be betrayed and put on a cross, and he said, Father... If there's any other way to take this cup from me, do it. But not my will, but yours be done. I don't know, but I don't look at that and say, oh, Jesus is weak and defeated in that moment. I say he is strong and powerful. 
And so as we look at submission, we see that it is something that is strength and not weakness. And it places a, God, a trust in God rather than a fear in man. And so in this case, it says we are to submit ourselves to all human institutions. We are to, to submit ourselves to the authorities that God has put into place in our world. And he refers to an emperor and to governors. Uh, but really, as we said before, it could be presidents, uh, mayors. It can be uh, city councilmen or or those who are in authority in the building, or um, you have so much authority in your life, you know how this begins to apply, even on a global scale. And even as we go through these passages, it's so easy to place them in our American context, but remember, this passage has been true throughout history. It's true right now for people who are under authority in different nations than ours, that don't have as much freedom for their faith. And so we live in a world that pursues personal freedom at all costs, right? You get your own choice about what you want to do, who you want to be, um, and, and how you want to live your life. Yeah, inherently, inherently, there's something in us, a compass in our hearts, isn't there? In every human heart, there's always been, in, in almost every society or tribe, some sort of authority structure where the authority does what it's supposed to do, according to this passage, and that is punish evil. We know there's right and there's wrong. There's something in us that, that knows that someone and looks for someone to bring justice into the world or some structure to bring justice and punishment for crime. We, we know that's there, and I believe it's there because God placed it in us. He placed it in us as made in his design, made in the image of our creator. We are to look at this world and see right and wrong. And he... Throughout the scripture says, I give you governments, and when they are operating correctly, one of their basic jobs, as described here, is to punish evil and make it so that people who do good are rewarded within that society. And we know that doesn't always happen, but that is what God sees the role of government is, one of the many purposes. But this is what he reveals to us here in this passage. As I look at this and I think about how to do this, whether you're an American citizen, a Japanese citizen, an Iranian, or, or, or even a, a Canadian, or, or a Mexican citizen. What does this look like to do good and to submit? You see, if you look here, we begin to be, get, get a picture of this fleshing out. He said at the end of verse 11, we looked at a little bit ago, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, Abstain, uh, abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in the midst of this submission, God's saying, the way you follow my word, the way you submit, the way you work in this structure of the world is a testimony to the world. And it makes a difference in the world. And yet, as I look at this, I begin to think of scriptural examples of how this works itself out. Right? First, we, in Genesis, at the end of it, we have Joseph. Joseph is sold as a slave into Egypt. And he respects the authorities and handles himself in such a way in the prison that he gets advanced and recognized for his good deeds. 
uh, rather than rebel. We see Daniel taken as a young man captive into the Babylonian world, this totally pagan world, and they even changed his name, trying to convert him uh, to their belief system and their gods. And yet he would respectfully stand before them when he didn't want to eat the meat sacrificed to idols or the food that came from a pagan religion. And he went to the guard in a respectful way and said, just let me try this out and see. Give me a week, a couple weeks on this diet. and Let's see if this works out so I don't dishonor my God. And his friends did the same thing. They didn't go and, and yell and scream and, and cause this big protest. No, they, they would just would not bow and pray to the idols. And they did so in such a respectful way, Daniel did, that when he was put in the lion's den, even the king was hoping he wouldn't be punished. But he had to follow the laws in place. The term that I see for this is something I, I want to call living with fearless fear. They lived with fearless fear. Their whole lives were marked by respect under authority, and yet their deeds, their good deeds, put to shame even the people who had come and accused them. We see Esther did this, even in her role as queen, which didn't have a ton of power, but she used that influence respectfully to save the people of God. So submit and do good. Sounds pretty easy, right? Let's go and do it. But we know that there's a point where you have to draw a line, isn't there? There's a point where you draw a line. I think we submit, but if we are forced or commanded to sin against God, as Daniel was, we don't do it. And we stand up and we take whatever consequence there is because we will honor God, our primary king, rather than the earthly king who's commanding us to go directly against our Savior and his clear teachings. That's where we draw the line. And yet... A problem is that it's people who are free. It says this. It says, live as people who are free, in verse 16, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. What does that look like? Uh, we can be pretty easily offended, and we've talked about that in this age of rage, and that it's pretty easy to just respond right away, isn't it? And, and to feel we're justified in how we respond on Facebook or in person and how we treat another person as less than us because of their values and beliefs or morals. And we can often justify our response and leave the concept of honor behind. One author says this, he says, Offended people react to the situation and do things that appear right even though they are not inspired by God. As believers, we're called to act and not react. And so our freedom found in trusting our inheritance in Jesus can't be an excuse for how we treat those who are trapped in sin, who have a different view of the world, who don't know the one true king. Peter tells us we're to excel at doing good. He repeats it over and over and over. We hear it in this letter. Excel at doing good. Do good. Do good. Live your lives in a way that impact others in your community so that they listen to what you have to say. Let's look at uh, verse 17 here. Verse 17 says this, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, I'm not sure why it came out in this order as he was inspired to write this. Yet it, it may help us to understand the hierarchy here. The hierarchy is fear God. 
That's that fearless fear. Our only fear is to be a fear of God. And remember, fear of God is awe and wonder. It's not a cowering fear that he's a tyrant. It's awe and wonder of how perfect and powerful and all-loving and all-just he is, the creator of everything. Being in the presence of God or even beginning to understand how mighty he is leaves us in awe and fear at what we don't know and understand. Awe and fear of God. So that's at the top. And then it's this command to love the brotherhood. That's love other believers. You will know they are Christians by their love. Jesus prayed in one of his final prayers, Lord, help them to be unified as you are unified with me and the Holy Spirit is unified with us so that by the unity of people who follow you, the world may know that Jesus is king. And then finally, we have two commands of honoring the emperor and then honoring everyone. In one sense, Peter's making a pretty powerful statement that he's really saying, honor everyone, honor the emperor. It's putting them on the same level, and some emperors thought they were deity. And so he's putting them on the same level, and yet, it's, think about that, honor everyone. Honor every, that means everyone. How do you do that? Let's make it even harder. Honor the criminal. Honor the murderer. How do you honor a rapist? It says honor everyone. How do you honor them? Well, I think as we begin to look at this and look within this context of this passage, there's a small little word, as. It says this. Honor the emperor as supreme. He's the one in power. Honor governors as sent by him to punish those. And, and as you begin to look at this, you begin to see um, a description here. And it's honor this. Honor the people as appropriate to their role. Honor as appropriate to their position. If it's he, a teacher in school... You honor that teacher according to the role he or she has been given you. You honor the principal. You honor the, the police and the first responders and those in our military according to the position they have and the importance of protecting us as citizens. You honor the mayor in, in the roles he has and getting things done to take care of our city. Well, then let's go back to our question then. Honor people as is appropriate to their role. How do you honor someone who's committed a crime? Well, we are in a nation that thankfully is established with a biblical value in mind. Not all our founding fathers were followers of Christ, but they did gain their understanding of humanity from the scriptures. And so, if you're going to honor someone, you give them dignity as a human being. To honor is to place value upon someone. To honor is to give them worth. And to give somebody worth as a human being is to give them a fair trial. And when you give them a fair trial, you give them the just punishment that is due for the verdict. And so somebody who's murdered someone gets a trial and they are guilty, then they get the just punishment. And that's what the role of government is described here. They get a just punishment for the act that they committed. And you are honoring them because of the act they committed. Sometimes it happens between nations and there's a tyrant and he's killing innocent people, a dictator. 
The best way for the world and the nations around him to honor him is to say, you don't belong in power. Someone's got to protect those people. And that's where you get the concept that many believers follow. Not all believers believe in a just war, but these are the principles around it, removing someone like Hitler who's doing that. And so you can show honor to somebody by letting them experience the fair and just consequences for the poor choices they've made that go against the law. And so honoring isn't always just saying we approve of everything you do. (laughs) Honoring somebody can be standing up for justice and truth in a way that is respectful. And we are, I'm so thankful we have laws that when used appropriately back that up and give us the opportunity to live this out. You see, if we're just fearless, we can easily forget to excel in doing good and to allow our, our, our being offended to motivate us to retribution or to hatred towards our enemies just on the ground level. Uh, the idea of fearless fear keeps God at the center, and it's for God's sake we submit, and it brings humility into our lives and our hearts. Fearless fear is about being humble and seeing God change the world around us through how we live. That's why in verse 18 it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Now we address this, um, for those who have been here in in some other books like Philemon, this slave-master relationship does not have a parallel with our world today. Um, It was different and and tied up economically, and there were some really unfair, unjust, cruel treatment of people. Uh, And yet there were doctors and lawyers who were slaves who lived a a decent life serving their master. And some were treated well and some were treated unjustly. And yet when we come to a passage like this with no direct parallel, we can look at the principle being taught. And the principle being taught here is one of respect for those in authority. So I think it applies to you kids who are in a school situation. It applies to those of us who have people in authority in the workplace. It applies within our society. It's a good principle that even if we believe they're behaving unfairly, there's an honor that is due them. And being submissive, choosing to voluntarily put yourself under their authority is a way that you can honor them and by doing so, worship the Lord. He says, what credit is it if you're beaten for, for it and you endure when you sin? But if when you do good and you suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And the idea of um, suffering here is not just uh, physical suffering, right? We think of Christians being beaten and hit. But the word here is often used for a mental sorrow and torture of the mind. It's the, and this is probably what we experience most in America today, um, or even many Christians around the world, is that people don't like you. They think you're horrible because of what you believe. Or maybe you have friends and family that don't follow Christ. And they wonder why you make the choices you do. And they don't want to talk to you or be around you. Or it could be in some workplaces you're not allowed to do certain things. Or, or you're forced or, or, or coerced or, or put in a position where your faith is on the line. And it stresses you out. It causes mental anguish. And so in this, he says, it is a gracious thing. Hmm. This points to um, this idea of this most common suffering of 
this idea of a disdain growing against followers of Christ. Um, and within that, it says gracious thing. The word for gracious thing means a winsome or a, a thing that finds favor with others. He's saying that when you suffer for doing good, and you do so in a way that honors people around you, it begins to impact their view of God. It begins to soften their heart. And so we can begin to see this. If we are unoffendable citizens of heaven, living here on earth, we can live free under God's authority. We can honor everyone. That means give people value and in and integrity. We, we value life as believers, but that's not just uh, meant for the unborn and, and for those with disabilities and for end of life. It means valuing the life of those who, who disagree with us in whatever facet of life that may be. They are God's creation. And then in humility, we see that as we do good works, it results in hearts that are softened towards the gospel. And sometimes that softening may not happen. We may not see it other times, it's just a very slow movement, and someone else comes along, and they begin to see Christ. Now, this month, this immediately made my mind go to our own history and the greatest sin we've had as a nation, which is uh, the slave trade, and that was purely based on people's color of skin and seeing them as less human and the treatment of them. And I began to think just of the American and the African American history and the, and the faith embedded in that and the way that they gave us a great example, so many of them of living in peace and yet honoring authority and yet speaking out for the truth of God. And of course we think of big names like Martin Luther King or Harriet Tubman and yet as my mind went on this rabbit trail this week, I, I began to look and see others who throughout our nation's history began to impact um, and helped our understanding of slavery. And I began to see how this verse is so true that others use their freedom as followers of Christ to twist the scriptures and try and justify their actions, leaving a stain on the church that we now have to work through and admit that, yeah, there were believers who were cruel, horrible slave owners. Yet in the midst of that, God continually had a thread of faithful people whether it was over in England with William Wilberforce or people here in our country. And very early on in the late 1700s as our nation was being formed and, and George Washington was leading us um, towards independence, um, the slave trade was active. And uh, I discovered this uh, young lady who was uh, taken, this poet uh, Phyllis Wheatley. She was brought to Boston, Massachusetts um, on a slave ship. In 1761, purchased by a man by the name of John Wheatley as a personal servant. Now, something was unique about this in that uh, John Wheatley's wife invested in this young girl, Phyllis, uh, way ahead of their time, gave her an education, and she became fluent in Greek and Latin, so she's above most of us in this room. Uh, I'm not fluent in it, even though I've studied both. Um, and yet, and then she began to uh, express her thoughts and feelings, and eventually, uh, in the North, uh, she was freed and was able to marry another freed slave. And uh, she began to write poetry and express her thoughts 
and share that poetry. And when you write something, it's amazing. And it, it gets passed beyond your life. It takes on a life of its own and can be used to change and soften hearts. And, uh, and she began to write this poetry. And it's in older English. And so I'm going to read it to you. But I think you'll be able to follow the meaning of it um, and track it. Um, but here's a, a poem she wrote. And she delivered this poem to uh, one of the people in charge uh, that could impact uh, the lives of slaves around them. And so she wrote this to him as a poem, and she says, But how presumptuous shall we hope to find divine acceptance with the almighty mind? While yet, O deed, ungenerous they disgrace and hold in bondage Afric, blameless race. Let virtue reign and then accord our prayers. Be victory ours and generous freedom theirs. No more America in mournful strain of wrongs and grievance undressed complain. No longer shalt thou dread the iron chain which wanton tyranny with lawless hand has made and with it meant enslave the land. Should you, my lord, while pat perusing my song, wonder from whence my love of freedom sprung, whence flow these wishes for the, for the common good, by feeling hearts alone best understood. I, young in life, by seeming cruel fate, was snatched from Afric's fancy happy seat. Such, such my case, and then I can but pray, others may never feel that tyrannic sway. So she began to write these and deliver them, and one of these was delivered to George Washington. And he was so moved by it himself, he asked to meet her in person. Uh, she would write this as a, a poem and a prayer. She said, Descend to earth, there place thy throne, to succor man's afflicted son. Each human heart inspire to act in bounties unconfined. Enlarge the closed, contracted mind and fill it, God, with thy fire. You see, that one poem over time was a piece, I believe, of softening people's hearts and helping them move one step closer to what God and his true commandments are. There's her photo there, or a little illustration of her. As I close today, I want to read to you uh, what Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans. Um, he has a couple of uh, verses in, ver in chapter 12 and um, in chapter 13 of Romans. And so in chapter 12, uh, you may be quite familiar with um, some of these verses um, that are written there. In chapter 12, verse 18, Paul says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, leave Live peaceably with everyone. And then in Romans 13, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who re resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, there's our word again, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all who is owed to them. And to whom? Uh, pay taxes to taxes, whoever taxes are owed. Revenue to whoever is owed revenue. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to who honor is owed. See, by doing so, I believe that as we pursue being unoffendable people, we're going to have an impact in this world, in the community, in the school, in the workplace that you're at. And we pursue doing good for others, even those who, who live differently than us. It's going to soften hearts, and it makes a difference. So as we close in prayer this morning, I'm going to pray for, for that and for our, our walk, but also for those in authority over us. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are to walk in humility because of how great you are and because of the great sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. He bled and died for us a great cost. And Lord, it was Jesus who was mocked, and he did not refrain. He, he didn't even respond. He remained silent. He took that punishment on our behalf, setting an example for us. And Lord, how far we've strayed from that, even in our culture and society as we walk through these times as a nation. And yet, may we be a people who shows respect and honor to everyone according to the role you've given them in this world. And may our good deeds so overshadow our opinions that people know what we're for more than what we're against. Know that we're for the gospel, we're for this school, we are for life change, we are for their families, because we know that the gospel brings the only transformation that matters. Help us in these tumultuous times to walk in a way and speak in a way that honors you. And when it's hard to pray for authorities that we disagree with in our workplace, in our government, give us the strength to do so with fearless fear, as Daniel did, as Esther stood up for what was right, as Joseph did, even fleeing temptation at the risk of his own life so that he can honor you. May our love for you be so strong that it overflows and people wonder, how can you take that? I don't get it. I thought you hated me, but yet you show me all this love even though you disagree with me. And may that soften hearts. Even in this very community, in this very school, may we see hearts softened that are so angry at the concept of God. But when they come into touch with the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection in our life, that they would be transformed. And we would be transformed one step closer to Christ each and every day as we submit ourselves to you. Lord, I lift up our government. I don't know what's going to go on this year. But I do know in the midst of whatever happens, may we be a light. And may you continue to shine your grace upon us and protect those who are serving abroad, first responders, our teachers, help our students, our kids to learn to live under authority and to, to show such respect that their teachers and classmates are like, wow, 
There's something different about them. May we do that in our homes and with people in our lives as well. In Jesus' most holy name, amen. Please stand.